The No Sleep Podcast presents the exclusive 10-part audio adaptation of Alexander Gordon Smith's epic tale, This Book Will Kill You. This Book Will Kill You is the story of Tommy Bright, a young woman who dreamt about a witch, a room, and a table full of meat. This is her story. This is about what happens when the witch comes back to finish what she started. But be warned, because this book just might kill you. The Fourth Part just know I'm going to dream about the witch. But when I wake, it's dawn, and all I dreamed about was water. Not a dream as such, but how sleep itself felt. A big, dark lake, perfectly smooth, not so much as a ripple on the surface. I'm tired, though. I ache with it, even though it's the best night's sleep I've had in a long time. It hurts to move my eyes in their sockets, and I think maybe Mom's right. Maybe my laptop is slowly killing me. There's nothing of yesterday in my head until I sit up and it slides down the inside of my skull and into my eyes. I see the cops. I see Kara's photo. I see the party, and a cramp rolls over my stomach. I reach for my laptop, the same way I do every morning, remembering it's out of juice. I grab my cell instead seeing five messages and two missed calls from Flint. I know what they're going to say, and I'm right. Where you? Tommy, you twat, answer me. You okay? Tommy? You okay? Gonna call your mom. Duck you, douche move. I write sorry as a reply, but I don't send it. She's right. It was a douche move. I should have texted her when I got home. I barely even remember getting home. Had mom been in the bath, hovering outside my door? The whole evening feels half real, like my dreams have slipped loose, like they'd started and finished before I even went to bed. When I draw back the covers, I see I'm still in my clothes, too. And with a jack-in-the-box jolt, I wonder if somebody slipped something into my bottle. Or if Flint somehow got me to swallow one of her little pills to help me relax, because that part of the night has gone completely. Something moves in the bathroom, an echoing squeak of heavy flesh in the tub, the slosh of water. I need to pee, but I can wait, so I head downstairs instead. I'm the first one up, the drapes drawn, the house yet to take a breath. I put coffee on, put bread in the toaster, brush crumbs off the counter while I wait, staring at that weird pattern of black mold on the kitchen wall. My brain's still catching up, little chunks of yesterday falling into place. I ought to leave it well alone, but I know I won't. That's the trouble with having a writer's brain. You cannot let a sleeping dog lie. I must have woken mom up because she's staggering from her bedroom, half dead, when I walk up the stairs. She looks at me through her limp hair, grunts something about coffee. In the pot, I say as I walk into my room, closing the door behind me. I take a breath, feeling knackered from just climbing the stairs, 
feeling like there's not enough air in here. It's better when the windows are open, the cold air entering the room like the first explorers on a new continent, slowly, as if there's danger here. Back under my duvet, laptop plugged in, toast eaten, coffee cooling on the table. I'd spend my whole life here if I could, if I thought mom wouldn't kick me out on my ass. I run my finger between the keys, brushing away crumbs, until the laptop finally has enough juice to crawl back up from its grave. It seems to take forever before it's ready for me, and I wonder if it's so reluctant because it knows where I'm about to take it. I take a sip of coffee, swallowing even though it's still too hot. Then I start with Kara Pierce's Facebook page. I'm surprised to see that her profile picture has changed, and I can't for the life of me make out what it's supposed to be. It's just a black square with two out-of-focus yellow circles, almost like eyes, and two fat lines growing up from the middle, arms maybe. The whole thing is blurry. I click on the photo and it should take me to the next one, and it does, only this one's exactly the same, so's the next. They're all like this, some Facebook glitch maybe. Tanner's page is still missing deleted last night after I messaged him. I can't quite believe I did that. It feels like an utterly alien act, way too brave for me. I scroll through Kara's other friends, but there's nobody there I recognize, Megan aside. So I click the creepy.com tab and load up Kara's profile. I scan the list of stories she liked or commented on, finding the one I was looking for. Tubby. I knew I'd seen the word before. That single comment on the single photo on Tanner's page. Kara commented on this story three days before she died, and all she wrote was, I don't know if this is right, but look at the table. Look at the table. It's the same. My cursor hangs over the link to the story like a guillotine blade, but after a few seconds, I move it away. I don't feel ready for it yet. Instead, I launch Google and type... Witch's game into the bar. Nothing comes back but ads for video games, so I add Kara's name, but that comes up blank too. I try adding Dead Girl alongside it, and halfway down the first page, there's a link to a Fox News page. Girl's death linked to Facebook Witch. When I click through, though, it takes me straight to the Fox homepage, and there's no sign of it there. I retreat trying to make sense of the thumbnail photo that goes with the article. Another teenage girl, not Kara. A school picture, maybe. It's dated 2016. I drum my fingers on the laptop, popping my lips, but I can't think of anything else to search for, so I head back to Creepy. It takes me half a mug of coffee before I can bring myself to click on the story, and I finish the drink off completely before I start reading. I get the feeling I'm going to need it. Tubby, added by unknown on 12-27-2013. Tubby is sitting under the table again. Tubby isn't saying anything, but he won't stop smiling. I can feel him smiling even when I can't see it, and he keeps touching my ankle with his cold fingers. Tubby isn't talking. Tubby never talks, but he's grunting the way he does when he's hungry. He's always hungry. 
Mother is serving. It's chip night and she's done sausages with them. Tubby don't always like chips, but he likes sausages. He prefers meat. His fingers rub my ankles, rub them red raw, but I don't dare kick my leg because I don't want to make him angry. I tell him to hang on in my head and he grunts and rubs my ankles some more until I think his sandpaper fingers are going to reach bone. Father is staring at me. He's staring at the way my cheeks curve in instead of out, at the dark hollows where my eyes sit, where the tears gather like dust, at the line of my collarbone jutting over my t-shirt. Mother too. She's serving me an extra big portion, but it doesn't matter because Tubby won't let me eat it. Tubby is too hungry to share. Here, she says, putting it down before me. It smells so good. I can see the grease on the sausages. The meaty smell of them rides up my nose and sits in my stomach. The chips are home-cooked and crispy, but they will be fluffy when you bite into them. There's gravy, too, pooling between everything, deliciously thick. Eat, she says. It's good for you. Eat, father says. An order. And they see me pick up my fork. They see me stab it into the flesh of a sausage. They see me lift the sausage off my plate. But they don't see Tubby's bone-thin arms slide up from beneath the table. They don't see his dirty nails puncture the sausage, pluck it from the fork. They don't see his grinning moon face in the shadows between my legs, his wet lips opening, sucking down the meat with a choking, gulping desperation. He eats everything. He even picks up the plate and pulls it beneath the table. I can hear him licking it long and slow, and my parents just sit there and watch me and they don't see it. They see something else, something that isn't real. And when it's done, they smile and take the plate that Tubby has put back on the table and tell me I did well, and they give me pie and custard for pudding. But Tubby eats that too. I make my excuses and leave, but when I look back, I see Tubby there, so big he barely fits beneath the table, his obese body squatting on two fat, folded legs like a toad, his bald, sausage-greased head resting on a cushion of chins, only his arms are thin, as thin as broomsticks. Tubby never wears clothes, but he's so fat his skin hangs down like a skirt. His eyes are just holes in the doughy flesh of his face, and he is still grinning at me. My parents' feet are touching him, his back fat folded around their legs, but they don't feel him. I know that Tubby could dance around in front of them, could jump up and down on their spines, and they would not know he was there. Only I see Tubby. And he sees only me. I can't even remember when he was first there. Or maybe he's always been there, but he never used to take everything. He would only ever help himself to a slice of ham or some apple peel. But the more he took, the hungrier I got. And the hungrier I got, the more he would take. Now he's always there. He sits beneath the tables at school. He stands in the shadows behind the candy machines. He waits for me at night when I'm so hungry I can't sleep and I come downstairs for a snack. 
He was there at the hospital when mother and father took me. When the doctor handed me a lollipop, it was Tubby's hand that took it, and it was Tubby that sat quietly in the corner crunching it into dust. All while the doctor and my parents stared at me and smiled and nodded and told me how well I was doing to eat. Tubby is here right now. He's sitting in the bath, even though the bath isn't big enough for him. His flesh hangs over the edge and touches the floor. He's bigger than ever and he's grinning at me and grunting and I know what I'm going to feed him. It's right here in my hands. A skull on the label and the words, Bleach written on the side of the bottle. I don't even care anymore if he drinks or if he lets me. I'm so hungry I don't want to live. My legs look like his arms. They're almost too weak to hold me. I'm made of twigs and sticks, not even real anymore. Tubby grunts, the bath squeaking as he jiggles impatiently. I lift the bottle to my lips and Tubby pulls it from me, puts it to his mouth and drinks and drinks drinks until the bottle is empty and he tosses it to the floor, still grinning, still grunting. He won't even let me have this, I think. He won't even let me go. God, I'm so hungry. Let me eat. Tubby climbs out of the bath. He waddles to me on those enormous legs. They're so toad-bent beneath his weight that he's the same height as me. He holds out his hand, and I think he wants something more to eat, but I don't have anything. And anyway, he's just wanting to hold my hand, because he does, his long fingers cracking as they close around mine, just gently. He's leading me out of the bathroom, through the kitchen that smells like food, because Mum is always cooking now, out the front door, out onto the street. I'm almost too weak to move, but Tubby is there. A dreadnought that pushes down the sidewalk. People must see him because they skitter out of his way, but they also can't see him because nobody looks at him. They just stare at me, at the scarecrow's thin shape of me, bent-legged and bow-backed, my arm outstretched before me. I don't know where we are. A tall building that reaches the clouds that is drenched in shadow. Tubby knows, because he pulls me through the door, up the stairs, up and up and up and up and up and up and up past screams and laughter and shouts and cries until I just can't walk any further. There's a door. It's open and I can smell food. Tubby goes first and I wonder if it is his apartment. But I know it is not because there's somebody else here. Somebody I can't see even though I can feel them watching me. But it doesn't matter because there's a table in front of me and it's covered in food. So much that it looks like it might break. And Tubby just grins at me. And the other thing I can't see grins at me and I know I can eat as much as I like here. I know I can. So I do. I dig my hands into the red of it. That glorious stickiness. And I eat. Thank you, Tubby. 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 Thank you, Thank you, Tubby. Thank you, Thank you, Tubby. Thank you, Tubby. Thank you, Tubby. Thank you, Tubby.
Consider me officially freaked out. I'm trembling as I look up from the laptop, and that makes me realize how close I am to peeing myself. I snap the computer closed and fly into the bathroom, no time even to close the door. My eyes are watering with the relief of it, and it's only when I've washed my hands and splashed water on my face that I notice the bath is full. There's no tubby in it, I'm happy to say, but there's a wad of mom's hair in the water, about the size of a hand, just floating there. I reach in to pull the plug, the water still warm, my hand coming free with a curl of hair wrapped tight around my fingers. I wipe it off on the towel, then crash onto my bed. Tubby's in my head, and I know that's the whole point of creepypastas. I know that's why people write them, but this one's getting to me. It wasn't even particularly good. I open up the laptop, the story fizzing out of the dark as the screen comes to life like a shark appearing from deep water. Those last three words go on forever. The author must have written them a thousand times. When I finally get to the comments, they're mostly positive. A couple of shout-downs, one accusation of plagiarism, and of course, Kara's comment, somewhere in the middle. I don't know if this is right, but look at the table. Look at the table. It's the same. A table full of food, I think. A table full of meat. And it's not just that, is it? The building described here isn't a million miles away from the building in Pinch. It's not a million miles away from the building in my story, either. The building I used to see in my dreams. Except that's ridiculous. Because all they say is a high-rise. And how many of them are there here, in this country alone? A million? I'm jumping to conclusions. I'm seeing things where nothing is there. It's just a story, written by some kid who was probably sitting in a bedroom like this when they did it. Laptop on their knee, annoying brother playing the Xbox in the room next door. To prove it to myself, I click on the author's name, but it's an unknown page, which is weird in itself. I'm looking too deep, I know it. Like Flint told me yesterday... This is just a case of a lonely, sad, horror-loving girl who probably found out her douchebag boyfriend was cheating on her with her best friend and decided she just didn't want to be here anymore. Megan was trying to throw me off the scent with the whole game thing, casting the blame on Tanner. Back when Dad had been alive, he always told me I thought too much about everything. His favorite thing to bring up was Occam's razor. Whichever solution to a problem is the simplest is almost always correct, or something like that. Sad girl commits suicide? Or two people play a weird witch game based on creepypastas that ended up with one of them dead and one missing, and which, by the way, might have something to do with a dream you used to have when you were a kid? I actually laugh, and the room feels a little brighter for it. I could click out of creepy now and never come back, I know. I could go through my whole life and never think about Kara Pierce again. And I almost do. I almost do. But I don't. You know I don't. You wouldn't be hearing this story if I'd left the dead girl alone. You'd still be safe if I had left the dead girl alone. You'd still have a chance. I'm back on Kara's page before I even know it, scrolling through her photos. Nothing but that weird, blurred image. I check Megan's page next, and halfway through her feed, I see it. 
An image of her and Kara sitting at a bar, cocktails in their hands even though they were way too young to order them. The explanation for this lies with who's serving them. A young, tanned guy with a $3 million smile and a barman's uniform. There's no ID on him, but the caption reads, Tanner's always spoiling me, and the photo's geotagged. Outcast bar. I haven't heard of it, but Google comes to the rescue again. It's on Peterson and Fourth, a subway right away. I close the laptop and lie back, staring at the ceiling. There's a string of cobweb hanging down from my lampshade, as thick and dark as hair. And even as I notice it, I hear a splash of water from the bathroom again, a heavy body moving, then footsteps pounding across the landing and down the stairs. Nothing passes my room, though. It must be from next door, I think. But the truth is, my stomach is churning. My skin's trying to crawl off my bones. Forget about it. Stani, shouting, and he sounds close. I clamber off my bed and walk to my door, poking my head out to see my little brother standing right there, staring into space. Forget about what? His eyes crawl to meet mine. The rest of him seems utterly motionless, a glitch in time. Then, just like that, he sneers at me. The door, you idiot. He turns and gallops down the stairs. Somebody's knocking, and I'm chasing after him. I got it, I hear myself say, but he's making a point of it now, stomping to the front door. There's a pair of shadows hanging in the marbled glass, broken into a thousand pieces. Wait, Donnie, hang on. He slides the deadbolt and opens it, but somebody grabs my shoulder hard, and I turn to see Mom there. Her mouth is open, like she's yawning, like she's silently screaming, and there's a wad of darkness sitting on her tongue, stuffed down her throat like a rack. She moans, chokes, her jaw snapping like a nutcracker's, once, twice, then she's speaking. Where are you going? I don't want you skipping out again, getting drunk. My entire vocabulary is lodged in my throat. I look at her, standing there in her bathrobe, a towel wrapped around her head, strands of damp hair hanging down from it. What? Did you hear me? I remember the door, turn back to see that it's closed. There's definitely a shadow in the glass, though, getting bigger, getting closer. The latch turns, the door opens, and Donnie's there. Forgot my phone. He pushes past me into the kitchen, then walks back again. That goes for you too, Donnie. Six at the latest, hear me? Yeah, yeah. He grins at me. What's up with you, dork? You look like you've just seen Mom and the Milkman doing the naked Fandango on the dining room table. Donnie, enough! Mom chases him out the door with the back of her hand. He's laughing as he drops down the steps onto the sidewalk. Mom's laughing too as she closes the door behind him. I'm not laughing. I'm not sure I will ever remember how to laugh again. Six. Mom twirls a finger in her hair, pulling out a thin strand, staring at it. No later. She walks to the stairs, heads up them. And as she turns the corner, I swear I see her put her finger, put that little curl of dark hair, in her mouth. 
I can hear her chewing on it right up until the bathroom door slams behind her and the bath starts running. I call Flint while I'm walking to the subway station, but she's too pissed at me to answer. I call again, and this time I leave a message. It's a whole 30 seconds of me trying to find the right words, then settling for the wrong ones. I think something's happening. I'm not sure. I think it's got to do with the girl. With Kara. I shake my head. I'm sorry, Flint. I'm just a little freaked out. Call me, okay? It's only just past nine, but the sun has forgotten to wake up. The skies are dark, the clouds low, a drizzle turning everything gloss. It's not like I want to be out here, but I don't want to be at home either. It feels like something has broken there, that something has pulled loose. It's ridiculous, of course. I'm just wired, on edge. They are tiny little tricks of a tired mind. But every time I think this, I find myself wondering if Kara thought the same thing. If she thought she was sliding into madness, too. Maybe she was. Maybe she wasn't. I drop down into the cemetery quiet of the subway. Platforms all but deserted. The trains are too loud, too hot, too empty, and I'm almost weeping with happiness by the time I climb the stairs onto Peterson North. This side of the city is brighter. Not quite spring, but not quite winter, either. I lose my way twice trying to find fourth, and even when I do, it takes me another half an hour to locate the bar. It's in a basement, and the only indication that it's there at all is a tiny label on the bottom right corner of the glass door. The only other thing on the door is an eviction notice. It's dated last week, and already the place looks dead, the mail piling up inside, one window fractured, I try the door anyway, because I've come all this way, and the feeling I have when it opens is mixed. I look down the street, both ways, but there's nobody here. Nobody in the windows. Nobody driving. It's like this part of the city has been forgotten by everybody except me. I have to use my shoulder to shunt the door open past the avalanche of letters. There's a staircase ahead, heading down. And there has to be somebody there because there's a light on, and I can hear the clink of glassware. It's impossible to find the air to call out with, so I head down, hearing the door click shut behind me, feeling my ears pop like this place is an airlock, like it's much deeper here than it lets on. It gets brighter, though, and when I reach the bottom of the stairs, I see a big bar, tables and chairs neatly arranged, the smell of polish hanging in the air. Everything's in shades of red and black and brass, a patterned carpet leading across the room to a huge mirror-backed bar. There's a woman there, a girl, really, maybe the same age as Tanner. She's polishing shot glasses, lining them up on the bar, six of them in a neat little row. Hey. Hey. She doesn't hear me, just takes another glass from beneath the bar polishes it with her cloth, then puts it next to the others. I head across the room, my footsteps swallowed whole by the carpet. Ornate lights hang from the ceiling, and I notice that they're all swaying, just slightly, like a subway train has passed nearby, or a bomb has dropped overhead. 
the thought of it makes my throat close up, but I push the image of collapsing buildings out of my head, walk to the bar. I hang back a short distance though, six feet, hovering there like I'm afraid to land. I'm right there in the mirror, and it's tilted. It makes me look like I'm growing out of the bar woman's head. I'm not sure if it's the glass or the light or maybe both, but I look gray. Uh, hey. Hello. She pauses halfway to putting the next shot glass on the bar, finally sees me. She manages a smile, but it doesn't come anywhere near her eyes. I wonder if she's lost in thoughts of repossession. <laughs> hey. She puts the glass down. Sorry, miles away. She looks around, as if remembering. We're closed, can't serve you. It's okay. It feels wrong to be standing so far away, but something's holding me here. Something magnetic, repulsive. I was actually just looking for somebody. Uh, Tanner. Tanner? She shakes her head. You won't find him here. We lost him days ago. I know. I chew my lip while the barmaid places another glass on the bar, nudging it into line with the others. Six of them. I've been trying to reach him. He was girlfriend? No. One of his girlfriends, I should say. If you were, I feel sorry for you. Stringing us along like kites. Wherever he is, I hope it's cold and dark and underground. But not a bar. You get me? I'm not. I'm his... his sister. But from another mister. We're cousins. You're Julia? You know, I never really heard Tanner say anything good about anyone, but... He thought you were a damned queen. You're over from Pasadena, right? I nod, hoping the lighting covers up the blush. We're worried. Nobody's heard from him. I was wondering if you knew where he was? The barmaid polishes another glass, places it in the line, takes another from the shelf. You know, it's his fault this place closed. Don't ask me how, but it was. It's... She shudders so hard the glass in her hand drops to the bar. She picks it up, polishes it again, puts it down, takes another. <sighs> I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what he did, but it's... It's... Whatever he did, it's stuck. What? I don't understand. It's stuck. I'm getting that sick feeling again, like I've downed a pint of cooking oil. I look back to where I know the stairs are, but they seem further away. The whole room seems bigger, and it's almost like there are people hovering on the edge of it. But when I look at them, they're not there. They're just shadows caused by the swinging lights. Please, tell me where he lives. I need to speak to him. Won't do you any good. He's not there. Then where is he? She sighs, the glass squeaking as she runs her rag over it. He's here. But you won't find him. He's too deep. He's too slow. She places the glass down next to the others. Six of them. Still just six of them. In a neat little row. I'm backing away before I know it, and the girl's smile follows me. I feel like I want to reach out and grab her. To pull her up with me so she doesn't have to stay down here by herself. But I'm worried that she'll never let me go, so I turn and walk away. Walk back toward the stairway door. Only the room's too big. It's growing. 
and even when I break into a run, the door doesn't get any closer. A factory line of tables and chairs appearing from nowhere, passing me, while that back wall stretches further and further and further. I turn, the bar still right behind me, the girl still smiling. She's put down the cloth, and her hand is reaching over the top of the bar, her arm too long, broomstick thin. I trip, fall, use a chair to climb back up again, and I run and run and run until I just can't bear it anymore, and I open my mouth and scream. The room wobbles, and I slam into the door so hard I think I've cracked a bone in my wrist. I push it open, stumble onto the stairs, looking back just once to see the barmaid. There's somebody sitting right in front of her. I'm sure of it. A guy with his face turned away from me, his finger tracing around the rim of a shot glass. He starts to turn his head, but I'm not waiting to see. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't trust my legs, so I take the stairs on all fours, staying on them until I push through the door onto the sidewalk. Even then, I don't stand. I roll onto my back, the building leaning over me like it's going to scoop me back inside itself. I swear, kicking myself away over the lip of the sidewalk. Something honks, a squeal of brakes, a cab swerving to avoid me. It doesn't stop, its horn blaring until it reaches the end of the street. You crazy? An old guy gestures at me with his walking cane. Almost got your head popped like a melon, fool girl. He doesn't stop to help me up, and even though a younger guy offers me his hand, I shake my head finding my own feet and backing away. The bar watches me go, that glass door dark. I wonder what will happen if I try to open it again, whether this time it will be locked, whether it was always locked, but nothing on this earth will make me try. Not on my own, anyway. I dig out my cell phone, nothing from Flint. I call her again, but it goes straight to voicemail. Please, Flint. I need you. I hang up, standing to one side to let people pass. Nobody reaches for me with bone-thin arms. Nobody even looks at me. I'm sliding my cell back into my bag when it rings, and I'm sobbing as I answer Flint's call. <laughs> thank God. Thank God. Don't think I've forgotten you, asswipe. Why the fuck didn't you text me? I looked around that party for an hour trying to find you, searched the whole building, thought someone at roofy you, was getting ready to call the police before your mom called me back and said you'd been home half the night. I know. I know. I... I can't explain it. I think somebody did spike me. I hate myself for the lie, but right now she needs to hear it. I don't even remember going home. Woke up in my clothes. Oh, fucking hell. I hear her say something to somebody else, the phone rustling. Then she's back. You okay? Yeah, yeah. Nothing bad happened. Just, like, no memories. Assholes. Not Marcel, but the others. Listen, where are you? Downtown. I'm... I stop, because something is suddenly sliding around inside me, a nest of snakes coiling in my gut. My skin's gone tight and cold my scalp peeling itself off my skin. I'm just down the street from the bar. I can see the door, and something's coming up the stairs. I don't know how I know it, but I know it. It's as real to me as if I had x-ray vision. Something is dragging itself up those stairs. Something with boiling red eyes. I can feel it like a rabbit feels a hawk. 
I can feel it in every single part of me. Something kicking against my skin and screaming. Screaming for me to go before whatever is grinning up those steps reaches the door. But I can't move. I'm just standing there, groaning into the phone, and I can't move a single muscle. Tommy? Tommy, what's going on? Where are you? It's nearly at the top. It's reaching for the door. It's nearly at the top. It's reaching for the door. And I hear Flint gasp. (gasps) Go. Run. Fucking run. Tommy, run! I rip myself free, sprinting for the end of the street. And in my mind's eye, I see an old hand press against the glass of the door. I see a yellow moon face in the darkness of the stairwell. I run, her grin as big as a building behind me, as bright as the sun. I run, reaching the end of the street, looking over my shoulder even though I know I shouldn't. I see the door open. I don't stop running until I'm three streets away. I duck onto my haunches, sobbing into the phone, Flint screaming at me so loud her voice is broken into pieces. I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I finally manage. Then I take a breath and I almost believe it. I'm okay, Flint, I'm okay. What was that? Christ, Tommy, we must spend too much time together because that was intense. I felt like... I hear her slap her chest. Christ, what happened? Nothing. They can't explain it. A group of kids are watching me from across the street, laughing, and I stand up, turn to the wall. My wrist is throbbing from where it hit the door, and I pull it in, pull everything in as close to my body as it will go, folding myself like paper. Please. Something really bad is happening, and I don't... Please, I need to see you. Flint sighs, and I can picture her checking her watch. Sure, T. Now? I gotta head to work in a bit. Just a bit, then. Starbucks? I'm already across town. It'll have to be breakers. I nod. It'll take an age to get there from here, but I'm not lying. I need to see her. If I'm on my own for much longer, I feel like I'm going to shudder right out of this reality. I feel like I'm going to slip into hers. I'll be there. Thank you. What friends are for. And I think she's hung up when she speaks again. By the way, there was a girl at the party last night. Said she spoke to you. Megan. Yeah? Yeah, Megan. Kara's friend. Weird as hell. She gave me something for you. Said she wanted you to have it. For me? For the crazy girl who was asking about Kara, is how she phrased it. I'll bring it. She said it was important. I think she went home to get it. What is it? Nothing, just like papers and stuff. A story, I think. Not that it made much sense. A story? Flint, did you read it? A burst of static. Then something that might have been a pop and whine of a camera flash. (laughs) Yeah, of course I did. It was shit. Look, gotta run. See you at Breakers. The line goes dead. And even though I don't know quite why... I'm running again. This book will kill you. Written by Alexander Gordon Smith. Adapted for audio by Jessica McAvoy. 
Produced for the No Sleep Podcast by Phil Mikalski. Musical score composed by Brandon Boone. This Book Will Kill You, the fourth part, starred Jessica McAvoy as Tommy Bright, Kristen DiMercurio as Flint, James Cleveland as the unknown author, Dan Zapula as Donnie, Aaron Lillis as Tommy's mother, and Lindsay Russo as the barmaid. Join us next week for This Book Will Kill You, the fifth part. This audio program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. No reproduction or use of this content is permitted without the expressed written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc. The copyright for This Book Will Kill You is held by Alexander Gordon Smith.